In my first half of my career, I almost prided myself on being a chameleon. I could really, with my strong EQ, I could really adapt to any sort of social situation, which, you know, look, work is work, but it's also a social experience and be able to manage up, manage down and mold myself into some personality that would be most accepted in a situation. And I I can't really explain where I started thinking, whoa, 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 that's, that's actually not authentic. That's not me. I found a confidence that was just within myself. And I think that's maybe where I started to become more authentic in the workplace and realized that being a chameleon really wasn't gonna get me far. And I was always gonna kind of be somebody else's number two. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel and I'm joined by Brett Novak, the CEO of Liquid and Grit. And on this episode, we spoke with Nicole Opus, the former vice president of games at Zynga and the current vice president and studio general manager for Big Fish Games. It's no secret that the gaming industry has classically been a male dominated field, but it's one that Nicole has expertly navigated with her skills as a communicator, a leader, and as an example of how creating a more diverse workforce will lead to innovation and success. But what are some of the actual ways the industry can shift to be more inclusive? What obstacles did Nicole face and how did she tackle them? And why did she throw an expo marker at Brett when they worked together at Zynga? You'll find all that out and more on this episode of Creators at Work. I thought actually we'd start with some of the stuff that you were talking about with diversity and some of the things that you're really proud of in terms of being a female leader in the gaming industry, 40% on your team, which is incredible. I'm actually interested to hear about it. And we talked about it on the phone earlier as how you have impacted big fish games in terms of bringing more diversity and inclusion into it. And I mean, how you did that in gaming industry, which we've referenced on earlier podcasts is very male dominated. I mean, when I was at Zynga with you, I think we had like 12 product managers and we had one, one. female product manager, Josephine, mm-hmm. who is amazing. And then in terms of leadership, it was you. Yeah. In the 20 plus years that I've been in this industry, I've had for a very short time, just one female manager or one woman manager. And, and at Zynga, I think <laughs> I counted by the end of my time, 16 different managers all were men. Probably it struck me the most from an industry perspective was very early on, I presented at Game Developers Conference, GDC. Like this is like when it was down in San Jose. So it was a lot smaller than at the convention center. Mm -hmm. And I really felt different. I really felt like I was being looked at and maybe for difference, maybe because of my body, like it it just, it was very different. And it was me and that one manager, Jen McLean, who's also had a great career in gaming. We were there, we were presenting on the panel and I just remember looking around the room and it was all men. Now, when you go to GDC and there's thousands of people in the Moscone Center, I have this picture I took of the escalator coming down after a session end. And it's very hard to spot a woman in that crowd. You know, that's more recent. So in the in the 20 years, there really hasn't been too much change in so much that you can name the one or two women that have been in leadership that you've worked for. We're seeing so much change, definitely in the last couple of years of, I think just general awareness of DEI in our industry, 
and an importance placed on that, that companies have started to say, we are hiring women. We really care about not only gender equality, but race, culture, background, sexual orientation, equality. And, you know, I think women is kind of one of the most obvious places for the game industry to grow. And, and that to me starts in having good role models in companies like myself. And so that's where I've tried to lead from. And then also investing in whether it be high school programs or college programs around STEM for women to get interested in gaming and to think of themselves in this space, whether it be engineering or product or design or art. Um, there's lots of opportunities that I think you need those good role models. So as I've been able to be in a position where I've built teams, it's been important to me, just like everybody would say, I'm, I want to find the best people, but if I can do that and also have a diverse leadership team that others who are starting in the industry, this may be their first job. They can see that there's a, a different mix of people sitting around the leadership table that they're talking to. I think that that's really powerful. So one of my biggest opportunities was making Farmville Tropic Escape. When we launched that game, uh, most of the leaders were women. We had 40% of the team was women and we were making a game for women. And so I think that there's also a strong connection with, you know, one of my, one of my gifts is to be able to relate with our players. That's something that I think about mm -hmm. a lot, put myself in the shoes of our players or maybe the fingers of our players, right? Um, in the mobile space, trying to make a game where you can personally connect, I think is how great games are made. And so mm -hmm. having a lot of women making a game for women, it just is a smart thing to do. Here at Big Fish, I had um, a couple leadership positions and the there was already some fantastic women on the leadership team. And I was able to hire Heather Houston, who came from Zynga too. And she worked with me on Farmville Tropic Escape. And now my leadership team is half women, half men. And we have um, a diversity of ethnicities and, and backgrounds as well. I'm really, really proud of that within self-aware games, the social casino element of Big Fish or the social casino studio of Big Fish that we're able to really represent our players, where we work. And then the Oakland office is fairly diverse, but the potential of how diverse it can really get. And when I say diverse, not just from different you know, experiences, but different life experiences. And how do you tactically go about creating that more diverse team? I think it has to do with representing, especially when you're promoting your company. There is a large responsibility that I feel as a woman is to be able to be on Facebook or get involved in community activities or dip into those high school or college programs and really show that there are women leaders in this space. It's also very important that you have a woman, even if she is not the same discipline for what you're interviewing for on the interview panel when you're interviewing women, because we're we're social creatures. We're going to find somebody who's our confidant, our mentor, our buddy. And I think it's important that even if you're looking for an engineering role and you have somebody in QA, they're going to probably work closely together, but they may not evaluate their engineering skill, but they'll know there's somebody there who has a similar lived experience to me in this industry. Actually, I was catching up with the podcast with Andrew Ice, and I remember him calling me and saying, this is important to me too. How do I do this? And so I asked him, do you have women on your interview panel? And at the time, I think he hadn't connected that just having another woman interview a woman 
would help bring more diversity into his studio. And, and I think it grew from there. And it allows people to just see that they don't have to experience that otherness feeling. It's not that they see you as like bad or anything overtly negative. It's just enough to make you as an interviewee feel uncomfortable and maybe not even give your best interview or not feel like you can visualize a space for yourself in that company. Yeah. In this job search, I interviewed pretty intensely with about three other gaming companies and only this one and one other one had women in leadership positions to interview with and made it a point for me to meet a lot of strong women throughout the organization, regardless of what level they were at. The other two, it was really intimidating for me when Mm -hmm. you have someone who just wants to get into the details and is railing you with questions. I, I found that to come from more men than women. And even though I had you know, tough interviews with some women too, in my process, it was like, can you just slow down? Can you just, can we get to, can we say hello to each other? And I think that that sort of sensitivity isn't really baked in unless you work for a company that does have good representation. Yeah. It reminds me of a lot of the socialization that women, you know, grow up with. There's a lot of de-escalation. There is a lot of potentially taking more passive roles in conversation. How do we create an environment where that's not a factor anymore? There isn't this pressure. You can actually be just yourself. You can be a talented individual. You can be the person that the job is looking for. In my first half of my career, I almost prided myself on being a chameleon. I I would Mm. say that to people that I could really, with my strong EQ, I could really adapt to any sort of social situation, which, you know, look, work is work, but it's also a social experience and be able to really manage up, manage down and mold myself into some, some personality that would be most accepted in a situation. And I I can't really explain where I started thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's actually not authentic. That's not me. And I Mm -hmm. started becoming more myself. I think it may have been coming into Zynga where I felt like I had a lot to give from a gaming experience perspective because so many of the people there had not come from gaming. They'd come from other avenues of business or business school, right? Like that I actually could bring a lot after time at Disney and time at AOL making games. I found a confidence that was just within myself. And I think that's maybe where I started to become more authentic in the workplace and realized that being a chameleon really wasn't going to get me far. And I was always going to kind of be somebody else's number two. And I think that's why I really wanted to grow into more of a business leader or product leader in my career so that I could find other women to be my number two. That's really interesting to hear that, Nicole, because I was saying to Katie that you were exceptional at that chameleon skill that you referenced. I was always really impressed by it and jealous. I have a hard time doing that. And I wish I did. And it, it makes sense. What you're saying is that it's it's a really great tool to get you to a certain point, right? Because mm-hmm. I think when you're joining a company or you're a little less senior, 
you kind of want to be a little bit chameleon, right? You want to adapt to the product manager, to the designer, the dev or whatever. But then you're right. As when you get up, then you almost become just too similar to everyone else. And so it sounds like then you somewhat transitioned. Did you feel backlash because of that? Or was it, do you have to go to a different company to do it? Like, could you do that at a certain company and go from chameleon to more of yourself? Or how did you do that transition? I think that was what was really attracted me at Zynga. Actually, when I went through the interview process, I was interviewing to be a producer, an executive producer. It was just for the job. And then I remember recruiting coming to me saying, well, do you want to work on Words of Friends or poker? Or we're doing this rewards program to tie all of our games together. And I said, well, which one makes the most money? They said poker. And I said, oh, I'll take I'll take that one. Well, I also knew I would learn a lot from strong business leaders like yourself. But Zynga really had this great internal mobility program. And I literally had someone tell me at the leadership level, I will never be the GM of Zynga Poker. And it wasn't because I didn't know games or how games are made or business for that matter. It's that Mark Pincus was so focused on this game that that person knew me really well and was like, he may eat you alive. And if I'm not on my numbers and on my game, but there was a part of me that I thought to myself, well, would you actually be saying that to a guy? And that's what yeah. made me realize in order to grow my career, I need to take advantage of this internal mobility program that Zynga has to go to the next group to go to something different, maybe a part of the company that was a little bit more diverse. And so that's where I bridged from working on Zynga poker into the mobile Ville games, which were world builders. The first one was Castleville Legends that I eventually ran and was able to like be the leader of that game, which was just, it was a different environment, different game, but I didn't have to move companies, but I had to deal with enough of those sort of comments to say, all right, fine. I'm just going to go to a place where I have an opportunity instead of trying to mold myself into someone who might be accepted by other leaders in the company. I think one of the things that I was really impressed by you in Zynga Poker was the ability to change the culture and the operations of Zynga Poker. And at the time we were 80, 85 plus people. And we obviously had been working on the games for a long time. And when you came, you really established the game designer aspect in the product development process. Before that, it was pretty much 100% run by the product manager, but you had the ability not only to impact the operations, the producer side of things, but you also had a very meaningful impact on the product side with the game designers and the producers being involved. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process of doing that, because I'm telling you, like, this is a skill that I will never attain, never figure out. And that's not just me talking. I mean, cultural org change, first of all, I think is almost impossible. Second of all, I would never be able to do it. So if you could just tell me a little bit about how you went about that, if you can recall, like maybe some of the things you thought about or did, like what tools you used to do it. Yeah, I remember having some early conversations where we were talking about features and maybe the, the spreadsheet with the expected outcomes was predicting that a feature would go one way. And then I would look at it and go, nah, players aren't going to like that. Well, the spreadsheet says that they will. And I think it was 
something around that and also understanding that there were no game designers within the studio that we started to talk about the player more like move away from the user and into the player and really it's it's game designers who are thinking about the player and how they're having fun and if they're really great game designers some of the psychology of what a player is thinking and feeling and what drives them, right? What aspires them to continue to play? What What is their game of choice? Like, how do they fall in love with one app or another app? You know, I, I've actually seen a lot of great PMs who have maybe started on the analytical side evolve because once you listen to players or you understand what they're doing and you look at the data as a person rather than a user, I think you really start kind of putting that in your mind, you're always thinking about the player when you're creating something. But just coming into the studio and realizing that that wasn't the narrative that we were talking about when we were talking about features, I think it was um, in a combination with Jeremy Strauser, who was the GM when I first came in, he had come from EA where game design is quite valued. And, you know, we knew that we needed to add some game designers to the headcount. For those game designers, I think it, for coming into Zynga, it was someone who had a really strong ability to also understand the, the business of the games and a passion for analyzing what players are actually doing in the game. Because, like, look, if you think about console gaming, those game designers are, I've never worked in console gaming, but they can dream really big. And they build and build and build for years. And then they put out a product and they wait for someone to give it a critical score and to see the sales. We have this amazing ability in gaming to be able to like put something out, test it, and also get that reaction immediately. And for a game designer, some value that and some don't. And so I think we had to find those that really valued the combination of the art and science of game making to be successful at Zynga. I think for me, coming from Disney, where we were only creative and not very analytical, because, you know, most things are movies, there's fantastic creatives at Disney, going to someplace that was so analytical, I just felt like I could bring in a little bit of Disney magic into what we were doing at Zynga. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was awesome, but I'm also wondering how did, because one thing to just get headcount, right? I mean, that's the easy part. That's one aspect of it. And I feel like one of the things that a lot of the PMs that we've talked to who left Singa was that they, they missed was the human side of product management, collaboration, the building rapport. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't have any of those skills when I left Zynga, right? Mm. And I thought you did that really well. Was that was that something that you did consciously or something that you worked on or were there tools that you thought about? Yeah, I, I think whenever I come into a new, new studio or new game, I observe, well, what are the personalities? And I think like where I was talking about the chameleon thing, that maybe I adapted so much that I could really like put myself in that space with being kind of more of a observer, right? Instead of being at the table. And I mean, as a producer, you're the person at the table, like calling a lot of shots or, or getting people in line. But it all does start with that synthesis of, okay, does everybody understand how who's going to do what it's like kind of a racy chart, right? Like who's responsible, who's accountable, and then giving smaller projects to people to start to get to know each other, get to know their styles and start to see the value of collaboration. You know, I think that there was a time with so many PMs that 
we could have people who were very focused on different aspects of the business. I remember we had pods that were around revenue. We had pods that were around probably what we would call growth now, but it was DAU. When you get to smaller amounts of people, you have to find people who can mix and match. And I think that that maybe there was a little bit of culture shock before when there was just only PMs. And then when you start bringing in designers, they're kind of training PMs how to think about the player. And in order to get that openness, there has to be some social relationships. There has to be some trust that's created. I feel like I have an ability to get people to talk together and be a person who can be in a conversation and say, well, what do you think? And what do you think to make sure that voices are equal and make sure that people are well-respected for the perspectives that they bring or the experience that they bring. And, you know, it's like learning, teaching somebody how to ride a bike at some point, you know, I could push them away and be like, they're going to be fine. They're going to be, they're going to be good. I thought that you did a really great job back to what we were talking about earlier. Well, first of all, being, like I said, one of the only women in the organization, but Secondly, I think doing a great job of being assertive at the right times and being softer and quieter at other times and and just balancing that really well. I mean, this sounds like this is more of your chameleon phase, but I felt like I, I felt like the real Nicole come out when I was there and Nicole and I are talking, but let me tell you, like, I did not make this whole thing that she's talking about easy. I was, I don't think I no. was, I mean, I wasn't the one who was like jumping. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. In the beginning. I mean, I obviously adopted <laughs> it, but let's not like, let's just be clear with the listeners. Like this was Nicole doing some awesome stuff in a culture <laughs> and Brett probably over in the corner. I don't know what he was doing. And my less, it was 10 years ago too. It was less mature self. Brett, I, I, I think that, I think that I got bit. so frustrated with you once I, I threw a, a whiteboard pen at you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think we were probably on, you know, in a, in a conference room. I feel like we were kind of prioritizing features or something and you were, you know, Oh, let me, let me do it. And I was like, fine, I threw the pen at you. That's at least, again, my memory. My back, I came from sports. So I was just this like, oh, you just, everything is just aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. And I mean, mm -hmm. all of this collaboration and, and I was also kind of raised in this way too. But I mean, it's not really a good excuse. I should have learned it by then. But like I said, I mean, after I left, it was like, wow, that was really impressive what Nicole was able to do. And then on top of that, a, a woman in a predominant, I mean, it was 95% men. And you just had a really nice way of balancing, like I said, this assertiveness when you wanted to do it and, and softness when that was the right time to do it. I mean, that, I still struggle with that. And that's one of the reasons why my company is built the way it is. I mean, it is for efficiency, but it's also because of my inability to be able to do those more humanistic sides things well i think that is something that as a woman leader you bring to the table is a little bit more sensitivity to different people and different roles and then also i had to recognize my role i i realized coming into zinga poker particularly that i was not going to make the final call because i wasn't accountable to the business in the same way that Michael or, or another DOP 
is responsible to the business, who's responsible to the GM, who's really responsible for the studio's success. I think sometimes you have to model the behavior you want to see. And so I think when you saw me more a little bit less talkative or less assertive, it was my opportunity to really listen and learn. And I picked up a ton in that time. I mean, I, I feel I when people say, what was the best thing about Zynga? I say the people, I say second, the products. And third, the education that I got, the real business education I got. I, I may have worked for a lot of different GMs, but I learned so much from their different styles, how they looked at the business, how you look at the business and you also look at the people, right? Because you can't make a good business unless you got the right people and the right people have to get along and collaborate because games is a team sport. I mean, there are some examples where somebody is multi-talented and they can throw something out in the app store and do really well, but it, it really is a team sport, bringing all the different pieces and personalities together. And so I modeled that. I think that's what you're referring to some of the times where I wasn't assertive, but then when there was these times where we had to make decisions because we had to commit to dates and we had to commit to revenue goals, I knew that that was my part of the responsibility. I was accountable for getting our team to produce and push out content to our players and do that on a daily basis. Every day we were doing new releases. And so that's a lot of orchestration and planning that needs to go into it. And so that part is where I really feel at the time being my background had been in production, some business, but mostly production was really owning that because in that, in that role, you have to really have an owner. You have to have somebody who's, you know, it's like a coxswain on a crew team. You've got to have somebody who's calling the shots or, mm -hmm. you know, the conductor with an orchestra. And so, you know, I, I think that I played my role well, even though I think that there was so much hunger for people to learn and prove themselves at the company at that time that, you know, it was hard not to always speak your mind or, or, or drive something forward. Yeah. And I also would say that it's, I obviously was not there, but it does sound like you were able to exhibit leadership in a way that wasn't this really aggressive in your face, telling people what to do. There's another side to leadership that is that listening, that nurturing, that nudging of individuals into a direction of success. And that is how I interpreted what you just said. I felt like you were sort of the leader of an army because you had everyone on your side of the business was totally on your page, uh, like on the same page as you, right? Like you had all the designers, all the producers, everybody just like Nicole knows what's up. But then you were kind of <laughs> like on this line over and there was a product manager sitting over here and you were kind of yeah. on the front line standing there with a different personality, right? And that mm -hmm. was a little bit more where it's like Nicole, the assertive person's coming over coming over to, to like attack the product managers. And then you were getting met with like Michael Caine and, and like, I'm behind Michael Caine. Like it's almost <laughs> like the, the West side story. We're like, but that's how I felt it, it was like, I mean, that uh, was my, my feeling towards the whole thing. And then, you know, it, it, you, you came over and, and succeeded in infiltrating the, the product Oregon in many ways. Yeah. So. I think that there was also, I mean, I, I did, put myself into meetings. I remember walking around, like if there were meetings with a lot of product managers, I'd stick my head in. Maybe that was rude. And oh yeah, but I would open the door and be like, what are you guys talking about? Are you planning something? What can I listen? And I would just 
put myself, insert myself into that situation. I'm a very, I need context. I, I know that about myself. And I tell this story that when I was young and I would go to the dentist and, you know, he would say, all right, open wide. I'd be like, nope, nope. What are you, what are you going to do first? Tell me what you're going to do so that I can be prepared. And so I think that that, that does make me a good producer too, is to be able to keep a lot of information in my head and get to know Mm -hmm. people and understand what they're working on. And so, you know, part of maybe being um, forceful with the product managers was my way of you guys are going to let me in. And it was also that I didn't want there to be an imbalance of power. And there was a lot of power in the product management side when I got there and there were then 70 other people, right. And the 70 other people enjoyed what they were doing, but there was a certain point of time where it was, well, when do I get to make decisions? Where's my role? Like we're, you know, we're talking about game designers, but there's also the engineering lead. Like how do they creatively put input into a program or a a feature, right? They want to put their creative stamp on it. They want to feel some leadership around it. And so really trying to, yes, infiltrate the product managers, maybe with a little bit more gusto than I would with, others personalities, but you're also not going to win over some creative personalities who tend to be more sensitive and aware of their work and want to take the right amount of time and aren't as maybe brain quick as somebody who's an engineer or product manager. They just need to be talked to in a way that they actually will listen and believe and trust. So, and I don't think of that as me being a chameleon. I think that that's more about me managing a whole different type of personality and being able to meet one of my employees or somebody on my team where they're at with the kind of approach that will resonate most with them. I learned this from a podcast, Jocko Willicks, and he talked about a book that talked about leadership and how you have to have different styles of leadership to different people that you're leading. And I never really thought about it that way. And he talked about the three different archetypes. There's the person you just have to say, we're going to, I need you to take that hill. Yes. And the second person is, I need you to take that hill. I need you to go right two steps, left two steps, over five steps, and then in a detailed map. And then the third person is, you have to say, we, we can't possibly take that hill. And that, that person is going to say, of course we can. Of course we can. You're wrong. you know. And obviously, there's a lot more archetypes. But to me, that one story really hit home and changed a lot of my leadership style much more to customize it to the person and i have people on my team who it's now exact i I think about those all the time it's like okay this person i need to be like this right and then this person i need to be like that and and so i really think that yeah that's spot on you gotta it's i mean i think chameleon almost makes it sound bad but you have to somewhat customize yourself and your leadership style yeah i mean the the chameleon thing for me was more about me sort of taking taking a step back as to who i was when i was spending a lot of time just catering to somebody else's archetype or personality and not realizing i had my own and really coming into my own understanding and authenticity to be able to also say, well, this is how I like to be treated. There's so many personality quizzes that anybody can take. And usually if you're at a big company, they make you take a series of personality quizzes to put you in a box to say you're this color or you're this type or whatever. Right. Um, Or you can take them on the internet and entertain yourself. But I started to realize that I need, I'm somebody who actually needs a good pat on the back every now and then I'm somebody who likes 
I will always talk about the team and it's the team effort, but every now and then I like somebody to call out something awesome that I did. I want context. So I want to be in the room, not, I don't want to be in the room because just of my role or having more information than another, but for me to operate my best form possible, I need to understand the context in which I can operate towards success. For me, I think like earlier in my career, I didn't really understand that I too could have my own ways of being talked to, treated, getting feedback, whatever it be. And I think that that is my own personal shift. I think the ability to come to understand somebody's personality, how they listen, what makes them proud of their work, what their ambitions may be. And that's, you know, a lot of people get pride in their work for different things and I've always sort of naturally have that skill. And so, you know, it's really helped me in this producer role that tends to be the hub of a wheel. If I could repeat what I, what I'm thinking or what I'm hearing is that I think to be a great leader, you have to be really good at understanding who you're talking to, what they're motivated by, how they're going to respond best to different inputs or, or ways that you're going to interact with them. But you also really have to know yourself. Yeah. You have to know your own strengths, your own weaknesses. Like I was talking about, I'm not great at this. I'm not great at these humanistic side of things. So I hired a person to be the manager coach That's right. of my managers. That's right. Because it's it's I'm not that great at it. And it's not something I am love to do. It's not something that I'm going to probably get amazing at at least right now, because it's not something I'm super excited about. I'm super excited about product, but that's not it. So as a leader, I have to know, hey, find another solution for this and don't try to pretend that you could be this person right now. Yeah. And I think that that's where I started to really show my ability to be a really strong leader was Mm -hmm. when I totally understood myself and outside of a context of anybody else, how did how did I want to present at work? How, what makes me happy about my work? What make, how do I like communication? And I have to respect that for myself and not just respect somebody else's personality type. Starting this new job where it was nearly brand new people who work for me. And I have to say, this is much more difficult when we're all remote workers, but Mm -hmm. I really like to spend time. Tell me about yourself. You know, that first one-on-one people want to jump into, okay, this is the work I'm doing right now, or this is my journey at the company. And I'll ask questions about, well, why are you here? What, why did you choose this job? Why do you still choose this job every single day? What do you like to do outside of the office and taking the time to get to know someone to start creating those sort of bonds. And also for me to understand where they come from. What is the thing that I can help them do better in their job that's going to drive value much more than, hey, I help the company make 2% more this month, or I finished this migration to cloud, whatever it is. Those are, those are nice successes. But when people look back at their jobs, they're like, I worked with great people. And so that's really like you create a culture of trust, of understanding A lot of people say in games, like I worked at a company and they felt like family. You spend so much time at work. And so that really requires the ability to have folks like me who can pick up on personality traits pretty quickly to find the matches. 
Like I said, I mean, it's amazing. Every single PM I talk to says that they really struggled after leaving Zynga on the human side of stuff. But man, I mean, I could just remember just getting steamrolled in meetings and things like that because I just couldn't just walk in and be like, oh, here's the funnel or like, here's this. You know, I had to go deal with the sales team or the marketing team or whatever. Yeah. And it was just so easy to throw ideas into our games that were on Facebook because we were doing those daily releases that it was really hard to argue with someone who had conviction that this would work. I think that that somewhat spoiled maybe the product managers at Zynga a bit where any idea became an idea that was implemented. So I think a lot of it was that there was the ability to be quite independent. We also would hire tons of engineers that would be partnered with a PM and a PM would say, this is my pod, this is my team, and this is what we're going to go do. I mean, I literally could just do whatever I wanted to, right? Which, I mean, is amazing. Well, one of, one of the values of the company like, was be your own CEO. Yeah. And one thing that I really respect about Zynga is when I came in, the values were on the wall. When you interviewed someone, those were the values you were evaluating a candidate around, you know, if you spend time with Mark or any of the original leaders of the company, they embodied that. So you really knew the culture of the company that you were going into. And because be your own CEO was this opportunity to be an entrepreneur over the thing that you were responsible for. A lot of great people took that seriously. It was a great system for the time, for the platform, yeah. for all the things that was going on. It was very specific and things changed in the market, right? Yes. And so it had to change as well. So I stayed at Zynga for eight and a half years. And there was the period of time where the company was coming down from its success on the web and was learning to make mobile games and what would be successful there. And I had a lot of people saying, you're still there. That evolution of the company is... I value it so much because I really got to see how a company changed and how hard it is to change a company and how hard decisions need to be made to really evolve the company. And then with Frank, Matt, BK coming into Zynga and what they've been able to do with the company. I mean, now it's, I'm back to where I was when I started, when I was leaving Zynga, people said, why are you leaving? They're doing so well. And it, you know, just, I needed to move on and it was the right time for me to leave, but it was really interesting to come in at this peak, live through the Valley and then see it rise again. And I'm really proud of contributing to that myself as well as being able to observe that. And I, I've, I'm bringing that as a value to big fish as we're seeing really great success and how do we continue that? There is a question we do like to ask all of our guests in the gaming industry, in entertainment, you know, just in general, if you have any thoughts about what could be coming down the pipeline or any predictions of uh, this industry over the next, you know, year, three years, we would love to pick your brain about that. I want to sound really smart here. This is like my goal is to sound really smart. Here. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the subjects that we've been talking about is diversity in this industry. So I'll kind of, I'll kind of start there that I think that we are absolutely on this moment of momentous change in technology. And um, it, it not only extends to an awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but now that workplaces are no longer the anchor point 
for particularly for game makers and we can make games with people all around the world it, it, it's going to be amazing i think the next one to three years of being able to unlock talent that really can be a global workforce with global perspectives I mean, I, I would love to see more companies partner with what we would call Eastern game developers, those that are in China or Japan doing some really amazing things. And because we don't have to be in an office anymore, there may not be any more Western game styles and Eastern game styles. We may see more of those come together. But, you know, I think it's, I think there's this greater ability to, to collaborate and get different ideas from different places. I mean, the audiences are going to stay the same, but the ability for makers to come together, regardless of where they are in the world, mind you, it is more difficult to make games in a remote setting where everybody is distributed. I really like being in the office with folks. That's the way that I work best, but I think we're going to see some real cool innovations of companies that can now be global and extend their operations globally so that they can make more content for players. And I think there's gonna be some really interesting things that come out of that. Thanks so much for listening everyone. And thanks again to Nicole for coming on to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out. And he was telling me about a feature, a social feature that was being either put in or tested in Cityville on the web. A friend of yours would put something of theirs in your city. The question was, what do you think of that? And I said, that's a terrible idea. Because what if you don't like it? And then you have to tell your friend like, hey, um, can you please take out the thing you put in my city because you're ruining my aesthetic. That's just a hard conversation. You don't want to have that because these are real friends, right? A little bit different than yeah, how yeah, we think yeah. about mobile players right now. These are people on Facebook that they may be like, what do you mean you don't like my billboard in your city? What do you mean you don't like my building that's in your city? It created this like social, eh. And I think by like seeing his reaction of like, oh yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't make as much sense now that I think about it as a real player and their real social experience you know, kind of snapped Michael out of his very data-centric <laughs> mind. Yeah.